Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Anthony Johnston. Anthony is a New York Times bestselling writer of books, film, video games, and graphic novels, including The Exforia Code, The Fuse, Daredevil, Julius, Alex Ryder, the adaptation of Alan Moore's lost screenplay, Fashion Beast, and The Coldest City, uh, which the movie Atomic Blonde was based on. So, Anthony, how's it going? Welcome to the show. It's going pretty well. I'm very glad to be here. So we actually met in person. A lot of the times our guests on the show, we've never met. We reach out to them. They say, sure, let's, you know, let's talk. And then we call in. Whereas we met you uh, at New York City Comic Con talking to Ed Brisson, which was pretty cool. Yeah, it was a nice bit of serendipity. Ed, <laughs> I've known Ed for years. Um, uh, he lettered, you know, a few of my uh, projects, including the first arc of The Fuse, actually before he gave up lettering to, you know, because then he became a fancy big shot writer and didn't have time to do that anymore. But yeah, you know, we're still friends, stay in touch. So yeah, it was good to see him. At, so it's always good to see him at a con. We were talking to Ed, you kind of popped in, kind of said hello, and then kind of went on your way. What is like for you when you go? What is your goal? What's your plan when you go there? I assume there's a few Ed Brissons you're going to talk to per se. What's your uh, NYCC plan? That's exactly it. Yeah. If I go to a con and I don't have any or many sort of professional appointments, as it were, uh, in terms of panels or signings or sitting behind a table and stuff like that, then yeah, I just go to reconnect with old friends, hang out with friends. New York's a little different because I've been uh, going to New York just sort of as a visitor, as a tourist for decades. So I have a lot of friends in the city who are nothing to do with comics. Uh, and whenever I go to New York Comic Con, I try to see those people as well so you know new york is different in that i'm not just going for the con but any con that i go to where i don't have a lot to do professionally as it were then uh yeah i will always don't have much of an itinerary i will always seek out friends sometimes that i only see at cons you know there are a lot of people in this industry that you only get to see at conventions uh, even for those of us here in britain and obviously this is a very small country compared to the states but it's not uncommon to only see fellow British creators when we go to New York or San Diego or somewhere like that. So you travel 6,000 miles and end up chatting to somebody who lives 50 miles down the road. Um, but that's the nature of convention. So yeah, it's always a case of catching up, uh, saying hi to old friends, meeting new people. Um, that's, that's what conventions are for for me. And you have the, the pleasure of obviously like you're a, um, an established writer and you know people already. So when you go to a city, you go to a, a Comic-Con, you have all these friends in the industry. So for you, networking, it seems is like more of a, a way of life. For those aspiring writers, do you have suggestions on those who might go to a con and haven't quite met anyone yet? Are there any techniques that maybe you might have used in the past or any thoughts on that? I think, I mean, the, the worst thing you can do with networking when you're starting out is be aggressive and deliberately network i think that's the thing that stumble you know kind of uh, makes a lot of young creators stumble is they think they have to go to a bar and shake everybody's hand and give everybody their card and be really aggressive about making contacts and that's really not how it works if, it, if anything you're going to turn people off doing that just be calm be chill have fun hang out with anybody you do know you know hang out with them Find your peer group as well. You know, if you know people from online that you sort of chat to in uh, on online communities, agree to, you know, sort of arrange to meet them somewhere uh, at a party or at the bar at the con or even on the con floor itself. Just get to know people as people. That really is the best advice I can give to any young creator is the people who are on your level as it were, who are in the same boat as you. If you let's say you're a young writer and you might have one indie book published and you're trying to make a name for yourself, your peers are the people who are on that same level, who are in the same boat as you. And they are the people, as you move up through the industry, who are also going to be moving up. They are your peer group. So it really pays to get to know them. Um, that's what every sort of generation of creators does. You know, the people who I came up with are people like Matt Fraction, Kelly Sue, Kieran Gillen, Jamie McKelvey, you know, that's my sort of level of group. And we all came up together 
And so we all know one another. We all say hi to one another at cons. And yeah, we might know older writers. And of course, we're taking interest in younger creators as well. But mainly, it works better, I think, if you just sort of stick to your people who are on your level, because they're the ones who are going to rise up with you. And you'll be, they'll be your contacts when you get into the industry for swapping around names of artists or introducing you to editors, that sort of thing. It really is a case of just be sociable, be cool, be personable. Just get on with people and have a good time and don't think, oh God, are there enough people here at this party <laughs> that I can say hello to? I need to make more contacts. It's Don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, no, great advice. I actually didn't expect to talk about that with you, but I, we did meet at a, at a con, so it's great to get those insights. And I think those are valuable uh, learnings for new writers. Like, be cool, and uh, you know, eventually things will happen. So let's talk about your career. Um, you're a writer of many things, uh, books, film, video games, novels, as I mentioned in the beginning. Uh, we'd love to talk specifically graphic novels. Would you be cool talking through your process about how you write graphic novels? And then I would love to get into obviously talking about uh, Coldest City and then uh, Atomic Blonde, kind of how that all came about. Yeah, of course. What do you want to know? Let's take it back to the beginning. Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Um, I always wanted to be a writer of some kind. Yeah, I've always written stories and told stories ever since I was a kid. Uh, when I was very young, when I was, I think, 12 years old, possibly younger, my mother bought me a, an old manual typewriter you know, mechanical typewriter. Uh, when I used to sit at my kitchen table and bash out short stories on that, made a terrible racket. I've just always been into telling stories and uh, and writing. I also used to doodle a bit. I used to sort of draw my own comic strips, uh, and that was part of it as well. I gave that up because I real I wasn't that good, and I was much better at the writing part. But whether it's comics or novels or whatever, I've always just been into writing stories that's always been there and so when i decided to get serious about it as a career um i'd also at that point been a lifelong comics reader as well as reader of you know prose uh, novels i don't know there was something about at that time this was the late 90s when i decided to really get into seriously pursuing comics writing comics as a career and at that time it was a really exciting time it for me to uh to try and break into comics because the internet was just starting to really pick up steam you know web comics were still not really a thing but just starting to become a thing vertigo uh comics were sort of in their or maybe they were past their prime but they were still in their pomp you know preacher was still going strong sandman had ended a few years before uh transmetropolitan was going strong you know so uh, and the Invisibles was coming to its end as well. So th there was a whole, and I mentioned that specifically because those are the sort of comics that I always read myself. Coming from the United Kingdom, I didn't grow up reading superheroes. Uh, I grew up reading British anthology comics like 2000 AD and Scream and Eagle and stuff like that, all genre comics. And so I never really, not that I don't enjoy a superhero story now and again, but it's not something that I have that childhood nostalgic affection for that is very prevalent with creators in the States. So the Vertigo books, possibly because they were mostly written by British writers, <laughs> were the books that I gravitated towards in the American scene. And so, yeah, it just felt like a really exciting time where the possibilities were boundless in comics, where it felt like finally the form was starting to mature. And you could tell up just about any story you liked. And that really appealed to me, along with, obviously, the graphic nature of them. At the time, I was a graphic designer working on designing magazines. So I've always had a very visual sense of storytelling. And so, you know, that those things all combined to attract me, if you like, to go, okay, this is where I'm going to, for the time being, at least focus my energies and get into writing comics and graphic novels. Did you have a big break? How did you get from an aspiring writer to becoming uh, an accomplished writer? Was that a long kind of transition period? Or was that kind of one quick leap that got you through the door, so to speak? Oh, no. I, I'm still waiting for my big break. <laughs> <laughs> no, a very long series of very little breaks. And honestly, I think most 
writers especially, and maybe artists, but certainly writers, I think most writers will tell you the same thing. It's very rare to actually have that big breakout hit right at the start of your career. Most of us, you know, spend many, many years working our way up to the big leagues, as it were. So yeah, what started with me was I started uh, making webcomics. I joined online communities uh, where I met artists whose work I liked, uh, and this was all online. And, you know, sort of we would do short, very short little comic strips together, put them up online, um, and that then got attention from other people, other artists, so we did more, and then that started getting attention from editors and, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, one of those early ones actually was an interactive sort of choose-your-own-adventure-style gothic horror comic that I did with Ben Templesmith uh, back before either of us were anyone. And that was actually featured in an exhibition at the British Library last year because we think it may have been the first of its kind oh, wow. like ever made. <laughs> we had no idea at the time. We just thought it was a cool thing to do. Um, so yeah, I just kept doing that. And then eventually I, my first book was a book called Frightening Curves, which was an illustrated novel. And that started out actually as an online project where I would write a chapter of a story and Armand Chowdhury, who's a, a digital painter artist based in Los Angeles, would draw, would paint an image to go with each chapter. And we did that as a weekly serial on a site called Reactor run by Chad Michael Ward who at the time was a sort of dark gothic digital artist, now best known as a, a photographer and heavy metal music video director. You know, all these people, this is what I mean about your peer group, you know, like you come up with these people and, uh, you know, and now everybody's doing crazy things. So we did this story, Frightening Curves, online. And then after we'd done about a third of it, we took a break and a guy, Scott Brown, who was starting up a fledgling publishing company, basically had been reading it, contacted us and said, are you thinking about turning this into a book when you finished? At which point I had to sheepishly admit that actually I had no plan to finish it because I'd been making it up as I went along. <laughs> and I had no idea how it was going to end. <laughs> and he said, well, I'll tell you what, you finish it and I'll print it as, my, as the first book in my fledgling publishing imprint, which was a crazy thing to do. But we did it because it was fun. That was my first book. And then from there, I sort of that attracted the attention of a few comics editors. I did some indie comics. Uh, I did a mini series with Oni Press. That was one of my first works called Three Days in Europe, which was a rom com, believe it or not. Uh, and that led to then doing lots more graphic novels with Oni, and some work with Avatar, adapting Alan Moore comics. Uh, sorry, adapting Alan Moore stories into comics. And that then led to you know more things with Oni, to the Marvel work, to I did a, a, a manga with Del Rey, you know, sort of all these little things that add up over time, basically. So yeah, it is lots of little breaks rather than one big break. And one job leads to the next. You build up a reputation, you know, and then you reach a point where eventually, I mean, in the eyes of most people, you could say that before Atomic Blonde, the pinnacle of my career would have been writing Daredevil. Because obviously a lot of people see right. working for Marvel as the sort of, that's the ultimate goal, working for Marvel or DC. I disagree with that notion, but it was certainly in terms of my profile within the comics community, there's no question that writing Daredevil was the highest profile thing that I did for some years until Atomic Blonde came out. Um, and it was a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, so you could say that it all kind of led up to there. And then obviously from that, I then went on to do some series for Image and Atomic Blonde came out and, you know, I'm doing all these graphic novels and what have you. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of, it is a steady progression. It's not one big break. I've been in this racket for nearly 20 years now. So it's not, you know, hardly an overnight success. <laughs> you mentioned uh, writing your first book. When you dove into writing that first book, as far as approaching the writing process, did you have any formal training? I mean, obviously, I assume back then writing comics, I assume there weren't any schools for that or anything. Maybe there were, but maybe rare, right? Were you just going off I, what you read? I think there still aren't, not here in the UK anyway. Right. Um, yeah, formal education in comics is just about unknown here in the UK, I think even still. Um, and I didn't have any formal education just in creative writing either. Again, that's not, I know you can do that in the States, but over here, that's not really something you can do at a college level. It's, uh, you know, you'll study literature, but the idea of going and actually sort of doing 
a degree or something in creative writing is a bit of an odd one to us here in the UK. So I had no formal training in creative writing other than what I'd learned at school and a lifetime of reading books, comics, watching movies, plays, uh, you know, reading Shakespeare and just sort of absorbing everything. Um, I mean, I want to emphasize that I said I was, I grew up reading lots of books and comics. I mean, I was voracious. I was the guy who would go to my local library and take out as many books as my little library card would allow, bring them home. And within three days, I'd be back at the library having read them all and take out another <laughs> batch of, you know, another maximum amount of books that I could. I mean, I burned through my local library at a pretty, uh, pretty fast rate. And I really think that has a lot to do with it. You know, if you are a voracious reader, you will get an appetite for stories. And if you then also have an inclination to tell them, obviously having read lots really, really helps. And it sounds like such an obvious thing, but I hear, I find so many young people who want to be writers, but don't read. They don't read other comics or they don't read books. And, and I just can't imagine how that works. Uh, if you want to be, or, you know, and I still do now, if you want to be a writer, you must read. Uh, it's just, it's like breathing almost, you know, it's, uh, it comes with the territory. You said that your only formal training, so to speak, was the comics that you were reading. And obviously you were then taking what you had learned and created your own books. Where do you draw the line as far as taking that inspiration and certain things from the books, whether it's the format or, you know, the way stories are told or how things are drawn, all that kind of stuff. Um, where do you draw the line between that and coming up with your own unique stories? Is there, was it difficult finding a balance there? Because obviously they say there's only a few stories and they're kind of always retold. That's true. I, most of what, and certainly, you know, I did this more when I was starting out. Uh, most of what I borrowed, as it were, from other writers was technique uh, and sort of, you know, formal technique and format. And um, in comics, particularly, way, certain ways that, you know, certain writers, you can tell they have habits of how they might uh, pace a reveal of something on a page or certain shot choices that no matter what artist they're working with, you can tell, oh, this is that writer because they always have a shot like this to establish something, or they'll always use three panels to do a Q&A with a joke at the end. You know, there's little techniques and stuff that writers have. Uh, and so that's the sort of thing that I mostly would experiment with trying out for myself and see, does that work for me? Does it feel comfortable or not? In terms of the actual story and sort of story structure. I did study, I read a lot of books on story structure, both for novels and screenplays, because that's really only the sort of books you can get for those. Not many people do books about structure on uh, comics, unfortunately. So I read lots of those, and I think that did help. But also, again, a lifetime of having just absorbed stories, I think gives you an innate sense of, you know, you just kind of know when something's right or not. And then in terms of being original, if you like. Uh, I've never had a problem coming up with my own stuff. You know, if anything, it's the, it's the opposite problem. And I know many writers who have the same thing. I have 500 jotted notes of story ideas, uh, you know, at any one time. My notes file is just enormous, filled with ideas and concepts and one line here and there, or maybe 10 paragraphs. And some of them I will eventually get around to writing, but I know that most of them I probably never will. So I've just, I've never had trouble coming up with stuff to write about. My problem is actually filtering out what's good of those right, ideas right, right. From, from the, you know, sorting the wheat from the chaff, as it were. Do you combine your ideas? Do you ever take, okay, there's these three, and why don't I just mix those two together, and thus it becomes a more complex concept? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. I, now that you've asked me that, I'm struggling to think of what, <laughs> which always happens. But I know that I have done that. Yes, yes. How do you prioritize your ideas? You said you have 500. You said it's tough whittling it down. How do you know which one is the one, so to speak, that you're going to actually spend the next year or so working on? It's, well, I mean, I rarely spend a year working on anything, thank goodness, uh, which is how I've been able to be quite prolific. But I 
it, it's a very instinctive process. And, and this is the frustrating part of trying to sort of advise people on this because certain parts of the process, for me at any rate, are very instinctive. Some parts aren't. Uh, you know, I'm kind of renowned as being a very sort of hyper-organized writer. And in fact, I have articles up on my website about getting organized as a writer. But there are aspects of the process, and particularly those early parts of the process, where I'm just figuring out, does this feel like the right story to tell? That's very instinctive to me. And a lot of the time, it just comes down to what can't I get out of my head? What is the story? What is the idea? Even if it is just an idea or a concept that I keep thinking about, that keeps bubbling up to the front of my mind that I cannot stop thinking about. Generally, that's the one you know that I need to then sort of get out of my head by getting it down on paper and writing it. Um, and most of the time, not always, not 100% of the time, but most of the time, that pays off. Most of the time that works and it, and it turns out to have been the right choice. You know, when I look back, I'm like, yeah, I'm, that was absolutely the right story for me to tell at that time. And I did, I chose to do that one because I just couldn't get it out of my mind. I knew I had to get it down. And once you decide on the story you want to tell, do you decide whether you're going to self-publish it or whether it's something you want to pitch to a bigger company? Like at what point does the comic book company itself, like a Marvel come into play? Well, I've never self-published comics. I mean, other than those web comics that I put up online, but I knew at the time that those were really just portfolio pieces. Um, for me, it's, I mean, I'm in a very fortunate position in that from an early part of my career, I had access to people who wanted to publish the sorts of graphic novels that I wanted to write. Uh, you know, specifically for a lot of them, that was Oni Press early in my career. I... And I did. I came up with quite a few ideas that I then wrote up quite lengthy pitches for and submitted to them and said, I'd love to do this as a graphic novel. I'd love to do this. Um, and most of them they said yes to. And that's why I had something like five or six graphic novels published with only within the space of about two or three years, because I just had all these ideas. Where I was like, OK, I'm going to pitch you everything that I have. Right. <laughs> Take your pick. Um, so I was very fortunate in that I could pitch with a fairly high degree of confidence that they would be amenable to publishing. And obviously, that's not always the case. But there have been also cases where, say, let's say The Coldest City, for example, that's a book that I wrote initially for myself. I was halfway through writing it before I pitched it. Now, it, I did pitch it to Oni Press and they did publish it uh, in the end. But I started writing it you know, with no contract, no agreement. Nobody even knew I was writing it. Um, because I, that was a book where I wanted to make sure that it worked. And because if you've read the book, you know, it's very sort of intricately plotted and I wasn't a hundred percent sure whether I could pull it off. So I waited until I was halfway through the script and thought, oh, okay, this is working. This is good. And then I pitched it, uh, to Oni. So that's another approach you can take is, you know, if you're not sure about something, just write it for yourself if it is one of those ideas that has to come out of your head that you feel you have to get down is write it for yourself and then pitch you know effectively a complete script or maybe halfway through or whatever it all depends on what sort of relationship you have with an editor but that of course is another aspect of when you're starting out you have to develop these relationships don't try and pitch you know your 200 page graphic novel cold to an editor you don't know because that pitch is not going to go anywhere <laughs> you know you need right. to have the relationship you need to establish those uh lines of communication and figure out the editors who are amenable to that and the publishers who are amenable to that sort of uh book or whatever kind of book it is that you want to do before you pitch i mean that's i think an important part of pitching that is often overlooked is there is a certain social aspect to it. You know, yes, good work will always win out. But at the same time, if you are pitching to an editor, it really helps if you get along with them. Do you have an artist in mind when you're writing a book? Or do you not have the control over that when, let's say, you're pitching to uh, a Marvel or, you know? Well, that, that does depend who you're pitching to, okay. yeah. If, it's, if you're pitching to Marvel, no. Uh, you know, you almost certainly have no clue who the artist is going to be and almost no control over it. On the other hand, if I'm pitching to Oni, then that differs. Uh, you know, with the graphic novels that I did, for example, that was 
Most of them I pitched without an artist in mind. One or two of them I did have an artist in mind. And some of them I pitched and they said, well, let's find an artist for this before we say yes, you know, and make sure that we've got the right artist for the book. So that really differed from case to case. If you are pitching, yes, a Daredevil story or a Batman story to DC or whatever, chances are you probably have no idea who's going to draw that unless you're pitching it as a team with an artist. That's the other thing, of course, that's always an option. You can, if you're teamed up with an artist, you know, you can make a pitch together. Um, but you have to be careful there because obviously you have to be sure that both of you are up to snuff because a great artist pitching a story with a, you know, a less than great writer will suffer and vice versa, you know, in the pitch, not, neither of them may get anywhere. Whereas if they just go in separately, you know, they might have better luck, but also you just don't know whether, uh, because of the vagaries of that sort of publishing, you don't know whether you simply might get whether things might change and you might get separated as it were after you pitch, you know, you might pitch a book with, uh, with an artist as a team and the editor says, yep, brilliant, great, let's go ahead and make it. And then two months down the line, somebody above them might say, actually, can I nick that artist for something else? And we'll give you this one instead. And then before you know it, you're working with somebody else. And that sort of thing can happen very easily. Um, and, you know, it's, it's part of the job, but it's the sort of thing that can also sour relationships sometimes. So do be careful about pitching as a team. But if you pitch purely as a writer, yeah, you've got to be aware if you're pitching for that kind of work, that you have no idea who the artist is going to be 99% of the time. How much of imagining the art informs the writing or vice versa? When you're writing, whether you've chosen the artist or not, I imagine you're conjuring up ideas in your mind of what it's going to look like. Is that a big part of your writing process? Are you describing those scenes and then that's really dictating how that um, artist is going to like convey that image? Or from your perspective, do you kind of allow or not really care as much about what the artist does with the words that you write? Oh, no. I mean, I visualize everything. That's how I write the panel descriptions in my script is because I have visualized, you know, everything on the page. Now, that doesn't mean that I have necessarily visualized the best version of it. Probably not because I'm not an artist, but I have to have some kind of visual sense of what I'm writing to be able to write a comic and write that script. That, for me, is part of what makes the decision of what format I'm going to be writing a story. When I have a story idea, most of the time, I know what format I want that story to be told in. Um, so when I'm making notes on a concept, I will know, okay, this is going to be a novel, or this is going to be a comic book, or whatever. Um, and so if it is something that's going to be a comic book or a graphic novel, then the visuals come along with the concept and with the idea. So writing it without those visuals in mind just doesn't, you know, it's not something that would ever happen for me. But as I said, I'm not an artist. So an important part of the relationship that I always try to establish with my collaborators is I will tell you what I, what I have envisioned, what I've visualized. This is my vision for the images for this comic. However, if you can come up with something better that does the same job but looks 10 times cooler, then for heaven's sake, go for it because you're the artist, not me. And I try to make that very clear to all of the artists that I work with. And there are some artists that I've worked with quite a lot, you know, on several books and for hundreds and hundreds of pages. When I'm working with those artists, my scripts tend to be a bit sparser. I maybe don't describe as much as I might for somebody that I haven't worked with before, but that doesn't mean that the images aren't in my head. It's just that I know how to write them in a more concise fashion to get what I'm thinking of over to that artist that I've already worked with quite a bit. And then as far as the actual script format, um, you know, we've talked about this before in the show. There's, it's said that there are two types of scripts, the Marvel script where you work directly with the artist and you go back and forth, and then there's the more traditional film kind of script. Um, I assume you're doing the latter version. Is that kind of what you would describe your style? Yeah, full script full is script. what we uh, generally call it. Yeah. Yes, I always write full script. I've never attempted to write um, Marvel method or plot script, some people call it, depending. I've, ne I've never attempted to write that because I kind of feel like I wouldn't be doing my job 
to write it like that. And, and I know some writers will tell you that they do it because they have this very trusting relationship with their artist, and I, I respect that. But I trust my artists implicitly as well. But I still feel like, you know, these people are going to be spending a month drawing this comic. It's the least I can do to actually write a full script out for them. And then people talk a lot about the comic script. Obviously, there's no, you know, one Bible for how to do it. But what about the uh, prep process, the outline process, the arcs? What does that look like? Do you spend a big chunk of time kind of prepping what the arc of the whole book is going to look like before going into the script? Like, what's that prep look like? Yes, I do. Um, I am I'm an inveterate plotter and outliner. This is something that differs very much from writer to writer and from medium to medium. But no matter what medium I'm working in, I'm a real outliner and plotter. And part of it comes back to, do you remember I said that my first book I made up as I went right. along and then suddenly I had to finish? Well, that sent me into an existential spiral <laughs> of terror because suddenly I had to plot I had to write the, you know, the sort of last two thirds of a book that I had made up as I went along. And that was pretty much the turning point that made me an outliner and plotter, uh, for the rest of my career, you know, ever since I outline and plot just about everything. Uh, I'm quite meticulous about it and I put a lot of work into it. But the advantage of that is that it means when I do then come to script is that I can script fairly quickly because I'm not caught out by plot holes or surprises suddenly realizing oh wait that doesn't work and it completely messes up everything that's come before it uh, which can happen very easily if you don't uh, if you don't plot beforehand so i don't want to over egg this i i leave lots of space for me to still be creative and come up with things on the spur of the moment but in terms of the plot twists and the turns and the reveals and that sort of thing, those are all plotted out beforehand, yeah. And I spend probably more time on that than on the script itself. What about dialogue? Does that come just naturally? Do you you know know what you're going to say and then kind of tweak it and go over and over and over it? Or do you find that it's pretty natural and you kind of just comes out? Like, how does it work for you? Dialogue for me has always been pretty natural, yeah. Um, I... I rarely need to do more than one or two passes on dialogue when I'm writing a script. Uh, normally what I'll do is I will, I write my, what's called zero, what I call a zero draft, which is literally just dialogue and sometimes not even very good dialogue, but just dialogue that does the job uh, and very, very sparse panel descriptions. Sometimes I won't even bother breaking up the panels uh just to get the whole script down and the whole story down so that i can look at it as a whole entity and judge it and say oh, okay that works or it doesn't work there's a plot hole here whatever and i do that very very quickly uh it's a sort of race just to get to the end of the script then i go back and revise that into something more clean and tidy if you like and it's at that point that i will focus much more on the dialogue and I'll do a proper pass of what I consider could be the final dialogue for the script. Um, that's often enough for me to then go off to the artist. Um, you know, I'll do a final spell check and stuff, obviously, but that's, you know, in terms of drafting, that's normally enough for me to send it off to the artist. And then when I get the artwork back, I might go, well, I will go over the dialogue and I might change some, you know, just tweak some bits of dialogue to better match what's been drawn or better fit with what's been drawn uh, once I see the artwork. But not always, you know, that doesn't always happen. Wasteland, for example, um, the post-apocalyptic series I did with Oni for, well, eight years, um, I almost never had to change the dialogue when that came back because I was much more meticulous about the visuals and about giving notes on the pencils uh, before it went to inks. So I almost never had to change the final dialogue from the script, you know, from what was in the script to the balloons. Whereas by contrast, when I was working on daredevil, uh, the lettering pass, as we call it, uh, was just a de rigueur part of every single issue. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd do that those two or three drafts of the script, they go off to the artist would get the artwork back with it, with guide letters in place, and then effectively rewrite the entire issue's worth of dialogue um, to match and fit the artwork that we then had back from the script. Um, and that 
seems to i'm you know i gather that's not unusual at all um if you're working for marvel or dc i find it quite unusual because i just wasn't used to it but everybody else really just sort of shrugged it off as normal so i, I took their word for it let's talk about the coldest city um you would you mind just kind of recounting to us how that ended up turning into a major motion picture like what did that look like were you involved in the conversations were you involved in the creative process yeah it was so pretty much from the moment i finished the script in um i finished it in late 2008 early 2009 uh it started doing the rounds as it were and even before it was drawn the script was doing the rounds of hollywood uh, and charlie's theron's production company expressed an interest so then uh we carried on talking while uh the book was being drawn and then they finally we made a deal and they optioned it just a few months before it was published in 2012 now throughout this i say we the we in question is not literally me uh but mostly it was uh the guys at oni press and their production arm at the time or rather production partner i should say at the time which was uh, um uh couple of producers in LA called uh, working under closed on Mondays. Um, and so they had partnered with Oni and they represented a whole bunch of different Oni books, including they did Scott Pilgrim versus the world, for example, represented a whole bunch of Oni books in Hollywood and including this one. And so they were having those conversations and, you know, so we got that deal made just before the book was published. And then it was a five year journey to actually get it made and released in theaters. Um, but throughout that time, I mean, almost as soon as it was uh, optioned, we had Kurt Jonstad uh, was recruited to do the script, and we got his first draft, I think, in January 2013, something like that. Uh, and that went through a few drafts, and then 2015, we started getting financing, we started casting, uh, and started filming, I think, yeah, end of 2015, start of 2016, and then it was in post-production for another year or so and came out in 2017. I was involved, I was a co-producer. So I was involved more than most writers get to be, more than most creators get to be when something of theirs is adapted. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't there. It's not like I was on set every day. I saw all the screenplay drafts, gave notes and feedback. I was consulted on casting and things like that uh i was on set for a while and i gave notes on the first director's rough cut which was done in early 20 no late 2016 that would have been um so yeah i was you know as i say much more involved than many creators get to be and i was very thankful for that but not to the extent where i was you know a, a full producer on set every day or something at the same time i didn't necessarily want to be because Having written a lot of adaptations myself, I've, you know, I've been on the other side of the fence, as it were, and I was very clear throughout the whole process to the filmmakers, to the producers, to Charlize, to Dave, the director, to everyone, that I didn't want them to think I would be precious or offended by changes or anything like that. My oft-repeated mantra to them throughout production was, look, I've already made best graphic novel i can now it's up to you to make the best movie that you can and if that means changing things then sure go for it because i've done this myself and i know sometimes you have to change things to make an adaptation work so i think that really helped you know i, I was very uh comfortable with the making changes and so i think that sort of put a lot of people at people's minds at ease if you like and then of course when the movie was finally done we were all blown away. It was amazing. And I was really, really happy with it. And I got to do the whole red carpet tour and, you know, went to Berlin and Los Angeles and all that, got interviewed on TV, all that sort of uh, razzmatazz before, you know, eventually being dumped here back <laughs> in cold, gray England. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I thought the movie was great. Uh, we are talking about possibly doing a sequel at the moment. Um, yeah, you know, it was all good, really. I have nothing but uh, sort of positive things to say about it. And did you, during that process, as a graphic novel writer, did you get caught up in the glamour of uh, of Hollywood? Are you considering uh, moving towards being a screenwriter now instead of, let's say, a graphic novel writer? And are you going to do both? Like, what are your plans moving forward? Oh, well, absolutely both. I mean, I'll, I'll never stop 
writing comics because it's you know it's one of my first loves. Um, but yes, I, I mean I'd already had you know sort of ambitions towards screenwriting of one kind or another for a while anyway. But Atomic Blonde did open a whole set of doors for me, which obviously was very nice. Uh, I've just finished writing a screenplay. I'm in talks to uh, write a TV pilot at the moment and possibly an anime series as well. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And, you know, most of it is directly attributable to Atomic Blonde. So, like I say, I'm, yeah, very grateful for that. But, yeah, I I like to do everything. You know, I write comics, I write graphic novels, I write books, I write video games, and now I've started writing films as well. Uh, and maybe I'll wind up writing some TV. I just... Why can't I write it all? <laughs> all the things. All the things. And that we do have a question for that in a moment. But before we get to that, I did have one more question. And it was a question we ask all of our guests. Looking back at your career, uh, all the learnings that you've learned across the way, words of wisdom for aspiring writers. Nowadays, things are so oversaturated. For someone who's coming out, the resources are available. Anybody can kind of create a webcomic and self-publish. Do you have words of wisdom for those aspiring writers who are coming out now? You had some great words of wisdom. For what not to do at New York Comic Con. You have words of wisdom <laughs> for how someone can kind of start out. If you were to start out today, what would you say? The, the best advice that I always give to uh, young creators of any kind, but especially writers, is you have to do the work. You know, writers write, artists draw, filmmakers shoot film. Don't just sit around talking about it or thinking about what you're going to do. You have to do it. And it won't be very good. And that's okay, because you'll learn from it. And that's the other thing, is you must finish projects, because that's how you learn from them. You don't, don't get halfway through something and then abandon it and start something else, because you'll only get halfway through that and then abandon that and start something else. And, and you never learn that way. You can only learn and get better when you have finished a project and you're able to look at it and assess it as a whole thing. Because until it's finished, there's always a voice at the back of your mind that says, oh, I can fix it. Oh, all these problems, all these things that I can see are wrong with it. I can make them better in the last 20 pages or two minutes or whatever. And it's not true. It's never true. But if you think that, you won't be able to therefore critically look at those mistakes and think, how can I avoid them next time? So you must finish your projects, even if it's a 500-word short story, even if it's a one-page comic or a two-minute indie film, it doesn't matter. Make something, finish it, learn from it, and make the next thing better. That's, that's life. That's work. That's what being a creator is. That's all there is to it. There is no secret, just hard work, perseverance, and trying to get better with every project. I love that. Are you uh, ready for something we like to call a series of seemingly random questions? I'm not sure I'll ever be ready for it, but go on. <laughs> All right. The first one uh, actually ties into what you were just talking about before the words of wisdom there. You mentioned uh, that you are a writer of all the things. That's also in your Twitter bio. So you're a writer of all the things. You've written video games, graphic novels, books, film. We mentioned that a couple of times on here. How do you find the time and the perseverance and the self-control to do all of those things? Is it just pure passion or are you just really hard on yourself and wake up and say like you got to do this anthony like how do you find that passion that perseverance obviously i assume you don't struggle from writer's block no no i uh i'm a great believer that writer's block is simply fear writer's block is what happens when writers are afraid that what we write will not be as good as the perfect shining thing that we have imagined in our heads uh and once you learn to get past that and realize that no, it won't, and it never will be, and that's okay, then writer's block is no longer really an issue. So it's a kind of a combination of the two things. I am quite disciplined. You know, I, I write every day, I get up, I have a routine, I hit my word count, um, and I feel good about it. And I'm, you know, I'm very disciplined in that sense. On the other hand, you say, how do you, you know, find the, the time and the, the passion to sort of do all these different things. My question to other creators is, how do you have the restraint not to want to do all of these things? We are here on this earth for such a short time. Why would you not want to do everything? Why would you not want to create as many things as you can, tell as many stories as you can, do as many things as you can in as wide a variety as possible? 
because, you know, tomorrow I could get run over by a bus and it's all, and that's the end of it. So yeah, got to do these things. That's great. That was another words of wisdom section. So that's like a bonus for us. <laughs> um, so um, a couple of other, we'll call them random questions. The next one um, picked up just from your reference earlier. You said when you were younger, you would go to the library and you would pick up the comics. Do you have any um, overdue library fees? Oh, <laughs> no. Right, you no know? This is the other thing about Is there a library I'm, hunting you down I, right now? No, yeah. I, I'm actually, I'm a, a scaredy cat in those terms. I am the most <laughs> law-abiding rules abiding person you've ever met um yeah no i have no overdue library books i have no overdue dvds from blockbuster or anything <laughs> like that. uh i'm the sort of person who would be mortified to discover that i had a library book and you know even if there was only a like 50 cent fine on it or something I, that would kill me um so no absolutely not i'm fine i'm good on that score all right that's great to hear we would have ended the episode right there if you, if you <laughs> did so next question You've written for Daredevil, as you mentioned, uh, season three on Netflix right now. Do you watch it? And do you watch it from the perspective of someone who's written for Daredevil? I don't watch it, but not for any reason like that. Uh, you know, friends have recommended it to me, and I know that I should, but there are so many things. There's so <laughs> many things to watch and to read. And, you know, and I, I work through them. Like I said, I'm still a voracious reader, and I do work through, you know, these TV shows and what have you. But I've got to prioritize. There are just so many. And, you know, it's in the queue. I'll get around to it eventually. But uh, I haven't seen it yet, no. Although here's an interesting anecdote for you. As part of the Daredevil run that we did, Andy Diggle and I co-created a character called Bakuto, uh, who was the South American uh, wannabe hand leader. Uh, And then we got uh, a sort of a small creator participation payment for his use, but not in Daredevil. He appeared in Iron Fist, in the Iron Fist TV series, which is the most bizarre thing. <laughs> it's not what we created him for at all. We were like, are you sure this isn't in Daredevil? And they're like, no, definitely Iron Fist. <laughs> wow. Um, and then as far as inspiration, you mentioned before the podcast, we talked about Alan Dean Foster, who's been on the show. Those um, Star Wars novelizations, were those an inspiration to you? What did inspire you, other than comics specifically, You know, when you were starting yeah. to write? Yeah, lots of uh, lots of sci-fi and World War II novels, actually, just because my local library had a great selection of them. Um, but yeah, I read lots of sci-fi and fantasy when I was younger. And Alan's novels and novelizations of movies like Alien, uh, for example, were absolutely an inspiration because they were so well-written. You know, he uh, is one of those writers, along with Harry Harrison, was another early hero of mine. He did the Stainless Steel Rat series. Harry and Alan Dean Foster were... Their style is so readable, so kind of fast moving and economical. It's no nonsense, no fuss, uh, just, you know, great adventure storytelling. And I think that had a quite a profound impact on me, actually, because that is kind of how I write now in both books and comics and my screenplays as well. They kind of, that's how I do it is, you know, fast moving, economical adventure storytelling. That's always been my thing. So yeah, I uh, I really enjoyed your episode with Alan, and I, I hope you have him on again. Amazing. I'm sure we'll get him back on again because we're just going to try to make it the Alan Dean Foster podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would subscribe to that. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, all right. You mentioned organization. Uh, obviously, it's a huge part of balancing all those ideas you have. And you also mentioned all of the content that you need to kind of um, – you know, read and watch to kind of use as inspiration. How do you balance? Do you have lists? Do you use like a project management software to kind of keep track of all these different ideas? Do you have note cards? How do you kind of just look at everything holistically and kind of decide this is what I'm going to do today? I, uh, since it started uh, syncing reliably, I actually use the Apple Notes app to keep track of all my sort of undeveloped ideas, as it were. Um, when I'm actually writing, I use the software Scrivener. Uh, and I work through Dropbox, so that syncs with between my desktop and laptop, that sort of thing. And they also have an iOS app now. Uh, and one of the reasons I like Scrivener is it allows you to be very organized. And you can keep all your research in the same project as your draft, and you can break up your draft into discrete chunks and chapters and scenes and all that sort of stuff. So I love that. Um, uh, and then I also have literally a filing cabinet for paperwork that is sat right next to me, right next to my desk right now. Um, and yeah, I just, 
I don't know, I, I, I keep everything pretty sort of trim and organized. I know where everything is, uh, you know, at a moment's notice. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's a system that I've developed over many years because uh, otherwise things can get pretty chaotic, especially when you are working on four or five projects at once, which I seem to have been throughout my entire career. Wow. Uh, before we kind of wrap up, is there anything sure. else you're working on or that most recently you, maybe you worked on that you want to plug and also maybe shout out your Twitter handle? Uh, right. Yeah. Okay. So let me think. Hang on. I'm looking at my, uh, da, 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 da. so what did I have? All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, my most recent new thing is, uh, actually a reissue of a novel called Stealing Life. Uh, which is published by Abaddon Press, which is an offshoot of Rebellion, the people who own 2000 AD. Uh, that was originally written back in 2007, but they've reissued it uh, just this month, actually. Uh, and you can get that, I think, from Simon & Schuster in the States. Certainly, they're distributing it at any rate. So, you you know, just go on Amazon and look for Stealing Life, uh, and you'll find that. That's the most recent new thing. Um, like I said, I'm working on a few scripts and stuff at the moment. I'm about to start writing the third coldest graphic novel actually because after coldest city there's coldest winter which is a prequel all about david percival and then i'm just about to start writing the third one which is going to be another prequel but this time all about lorraine um that's all i can really say about that for them but i am going to start work on that fairly soon and i'm also at the moment uh writing the sequel to my recent novel the exphoria code uh that's a contemporary spy thriller series and uh, sort of techno hacking spy stuff and i'm writing the second book in that series at the moment um oh and i'm also uh talking about possibly doing another new comic series but again it's kind of it's still in talk so i don't want to say uh, anything uh, more about that at the moment but it could be quite exciting and if you want to follow me on twitter you can get me at my name just at anthony johnston that's a n t o n y J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. And that's actually good for most social media because my name is spelt a bit unusually. If you just search for my name on like Instagram and Facebook, if, as long as you spell it correctly, you'll, you'll find me. Amazing. I wish we could bottle your prolificness, so to speak, uh, so that, you know, the writer experience. Uh, Believe me, if I could do that, I'd it myself. <laughs> oh, already, for yeah. sure. <laughs> Definitely. So again, thank you, Anthony. It's been really fun kind of to talk your career, your process and all the things. And yeah. Appreciate you uh, calling in from, uh, what city specifically are you in? Uh, well, I'm actually, I'm not in a city. I am in rural oh. northwest England, okay. uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere, in the foothills of the, the Pennine Hills, kind of halfway between Leeds and Manchester. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it and uh, hope to keep in touch. You're welcome. And uh, thank you to our listeners. We hope to uh, see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. <laughs>